Great to see all of you guys. You guys excited to be here tonight? Excellent. Uh, not often I get to wish my children a happy birthday, and even though he can't understand me, I props to my uh, son who's won today, and uh, pretty crazy, yeah, pretty, you're unsure about that. You're like, we're not sure if that's, um, because most of you know what's coming, in that four weeks we'll have another one, and um, so maybe we should stop and pray uh, for me and my wife especially now. We're excited about the growing family. We'll have three under four, four and under. So it'll be a riffraff, and if you ever want to see the circus, free tickets uh, to my basement anytime. It's, it's interesting now coming into the summer, and you know, our dynamic will change a little bit. A lot of our college students are home, and we have some college students back. But I want to share with you how excited I am about this particular summer for this particular community. I think often in churches, the gas pedal kind of gets released a little bit. Uh, but for us this summer, the gas pedal is actually going to get pushed down a notch. Uh, for many of you uh, have heard that we're actually uh, in progress, in the process rather, of moving down to Main Street. And uh, we're almost 98% sure that that's going to happen. Uh, the construction of the old Gateway Medical Building uh, will probably start June 16th. Or we're still waiting on a couple final things. But by mid-fall, it's very likely that we and Risen Lord at least will be down on Main Street, uh, St. Charles. I can't, I wish... I wish you could see how excited we were. Uh, we're still a little bit cautiously optimistic about it. But I want to tell you, being on Main Street in this particular city, which, with the heart that we have for St. Charles, there's no better location. If you're familiar with Main Street at all, it's, it's right next uh, to Llewellyn's, the brand new restaurant down there right across the street from Picasso's. Not a bad location, eh? So we're pretty excited about that. Um, so instead of uh, journeying here, uh, maybe mid-fall, you'll be coming down to Main Street. The second thing that I'm really excited about this summer is... I've realized how, um, how much we lack an understanding, a biblical understanding of what true interpersonal discipleship is. I've realized uh, over and over that Jesus has called us to make disciples. We desire, not just by tagline, but by heart, to be a church that makes disciples who are making disciples. But what I realize is as one of the pastors here, our job, our role, is to help equip you all the more in what that looks like and how making disciples should happen in your life. And so all summer long in our lot families, rather than releasing the gas pedal, we're actually going to touch it down a little bit more. And all summer long, we're going to be going through an intense training. Everyone in lot families or small groups that meet on Sundays will be going through both the philosophical approach that Jesus took and also the pragmatic or the practical, the application piece that Jesus took. We're going to look at the life of Jesus, how he discipled the boys. We're going to look at Moses and Aaron. We're going to look at Paul and Timothy. We're going to examine this, and then you're going to have a very practical resource in what it looks like for six months to disciple someone at the end of the summer. So we're super excited about that. Um, I think of all the things that we have done as a church to better equip you, I think this sits somewhere at the top. So I hope that you're amped. Are you excited about both those things coming this summer, huh? All right, excellent. I, uh, I want to share something with you before we get going tonight. And my heart is crazy full. So I have this image in my mind as we're studying First Peter of how much we distance ourselves at times from Peter's readers and even from Scripture in general. I think oftentimes we think that the readers of the, of the original text were like sitting around and all that they did was uh, think on Jesus and have Jesus parades and sit in underground churches and worship all the time. And I think we're a little bit misguided by Acts 2 that says they were together every day and, and, and that literally consumed all their time, which we get disconnected from that because we're like, dude, like I, need, like I got a J-O-B, you know what I'm saying? Like I got I to gotta go to work, I go to school, I have to 
make money. And I want to encourage you with this. The readers of, uh, the, the readers of Peter's letter here to the churches in Asia Minor, he says to the elect exiles of the dispersion, they worry about what they eat. They are concerned about how they're going to provide for their family. And the biggest thing that they're doing, like us, is they're learning what it looks like to live in a very hostile world. I, I have this picture in my mind, and I shared it with our lot family on Sunday, but I have this picture that, that they've gathered, like it, for me in my basement, and Peter is sharing, and they're, they're hanging on every word because they're being persecuted. Friends of theirs have died, which was the case in, in Peter's day and age. And, and they've gathered to, to receive hope for how it is that they're to live in a hostile world. And so they gather together. And I get this picture. How many of you guys have ever been in a locker room like before a sporting event, right? How many guys, right? It's an amazing time, isn't it? I, I remember uh, in football being there, and I played basketball too, and in the locker room, it's such a surreal experience. And if you've never experienced it, like, I don't know, time warp back to high school and redo it or something, you know what I mean? Or we'll just recreate it here. But you're all sitting there, and, and I'll talk about football, and, and everyone's a little bit nervous inside, you know? You got that anxious, and my good friends, um, you know, who would, would kind of bring their old school boombox and just be blasting whatever nonsense was blasting through the speakers, and, but there's just this, like, everyone just looking at each other, this calm. And then the coach comes out. And uh, for me in particular, my coach was quite fiery, right? So there was this chill calm. And then he would come out and give this, this very motivated speech. And I remember one time where he like knocked over an entire wall of lockers at the guest locker room, right? Which he had to pay for later. But it was awesome, you know? And I just remember this place. Like we, we all get excited and then we get to this moment. You know, we all lift the hands in the air. And then I always remember when I'm just about ready to leave the locker room, there's always this moment where I kind of look back. And I'm like, well, I, I guess we're going to do this, aren't we? And I just have this picture of Peter's readers. They've gathered together to hear encouragement on how they're to live in a hostile world. And then I get this picture for me in my basement that they're like starting to go up the stairs, and then they look back, and they're like, well... I guess there's only one way to go. And I want to encourage you guys with this. These readers were concerned about food and what to eat. They, they had jobs, some of them. Some of them were interested in education. Uh, some of them were very engulfed in music and culture. And they were learning, just like you and I are, on how to live out this gospel in a hostile world. And so as we dig in tonight, there is such beauty in learning how you and I can better be men on mission and women on mission. And I think what we find is we, we pull out the yeah buts, right? Like we, we've been hearing all these teachings on how it is that we're to live missionally in this culture. And we're like, yeah, yeah, but Mark, you don't understand my time. You don't understand the demands of my job. You don't understand how, how grueling school is. Mark, you don't understand how intense it is to be a stay-at-home mom. You're right, I don't. But I have one, and I see it, right? We, we pull out all these yeah buts. Listen, tonight I see your yeah but and raise you a yeah but, right? Tweet that later, you know what I'm saying? And I say this. The scripture, as we've already talked about, and bigger than that, God is faithful, gracious, and loving all of the time. And so as we're learning how to be men and women on mission, we get to say, in our weakness, yeah, but God. 
And so I hope tonight you're ready to dig into the word of God so that we can leave this place looking back and saying for a second, I guess it's, I guess it's go time. And that's exactly what it is. So open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. And I want to start on the screen uh, with verse 13, where we ended last week, just to kind of give us some context. We have a tremendous amount of work to do tonight. Uh, but this is from 1 Peter chapter 3, and this, these are the passages that we studied last week. Verse 13 said this, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And we talked last week about the two freedom killers. The two freedom killers being shame and fear. And that these two things in the statement we've been learning about, that God's sovereignty frees his children to live righteously. What we learn is ultimately shame and fear hold us back, although we're called to live freely. He goes on in verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, a current defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, and let you do it with gentleness and respect, dot, dot, dot. That's where we ended last week. A current defense, being freed from shame and fear because of the sovereignty, will, plan, glory of God. And then verse 16 says this. Verse 16 says this. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. How many of you guys enjoyed psychology in school, right? Yeah, we're not talking about id, ego, and superego, Freud style here, right? How many of you remember some of those terms? You're like, please don't ever say that again, right? The, the word conscience, listen, is so intriguing, especially in the context of Scripture. I don't know before this passage that I ever really noticed that conscience was in the passages before. But doing some research, it's found in 28 passages, interestingly enough. Only one in the Old Testament, none in the Gospels. But Paul is obsessed with the word conscience. And I'm going to get in the end to why. But this word conscience, we need to do some work on to understand it and how it differentiates from our cultural understanding and the biblical understanding. I think the best way to do that is to study what Paul wrote to his young disciple Timothy in the Timothys about the word conscience. So put up this first verse. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul is charging his young disciple to have a good conscience. Peter writes the same thing. Next slide. In 1 Timothy 1, 18, it says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So there are some that have a good conscience, and then there's others that have shipwrecked their faith, and the inference is they have a bad conscience. Next slide. In 1 Timothy 3, 9, it says, They must hold the mystery. He's talking about deacons here. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And so we're not just to have a good conscience, but we're also to have a clear conscience. Next slide. 1 Timothy 4, 1. He goes on. Now the Spirit expressively says that in later times, 
He's talking about the end times here. Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So there's also those, apparently, that, that their consciences have been seared. And lastly, in 2 Timothy, he writes this. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, Paul's writing, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I was crazily intrigued by this. Really hadn't noticed the fact that conscience was in the scriptures. So our big question is, what is it, right? What is a conscience, biblically, different from what we've learned in culture? The Greek word for conscience, very, very strange. Sunitesis. Can you guys say that with me? Sunitesis. You have to go like this when you say the I. Sunitesis, right? Now listen, sunitesis implies this. The sole piece of us that is able to discern good and evil, condemning bad behavior, and condoning other behavior. Does that make sense? The sole piece of us, sunitesis, literally means that sole piece of us that gives us discernment. Now, we step back. What's the, what's the next natural question? Does a non-believer have a conscience, right? I mean, that, as I was looking through the litany of this, that, that's the next question. Well, thankfully, there's a passage in Titus that gives us some indication. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their what? And their consciences are defiled. Okay, so all humans have a conscience, but apparently there's a difference between the conscience, I'm just seeing how many times I can say this word tonight, the consciences of a non-believer and a believer. Let's say it this way. Everyone is born, as Paul's already talked about, with a seared conscience, a depraved, sinful conscience. Listen, the inability to discern good from evil. This is what we talked about last week, the definition of good biblically, right? The, the Hebrew word is, is tevo, the Greek word agathos, and both imply pleasant, excellent, upright, honorable. So a good conscience is one that is connected with God. We struggle with this because it appears like some of our unbelieving friends have a good moral barometer. We, we say all the time, well, they're a good person, they just don't know Jesus. Or they're able to discern like what is wrong or what is right. But the problem in that statement comes in the motive. The motive of an unbeliever who doesn't have the Spirit of God, isn't living for the glory of Christ, ultimately will consistently come back to pride. Are you with me? This is tough for us to understand because we see smiling people who don't know Jesus. And so we think that their acts that appear in humility are good acts, but anything disconnected from God is not good. Are you with me? So we are all born with a conscience that is depraved, unable to discern ultimate good from evil. There may be a moral barometer somewhere within there, but not a clear conscience. Then, biblically, Scripture says, as Christ pursues us and he calls us by name 
and he implants faith and our trust grows in him and we begin relationship with Christ and believe that his blood on a cross has made a way for us to be connected with God, then what happens? The scripture says that we are given the gift of the helper or the Holy Spirit. And at that point, the Holy Spirit becomes what Paul and Peter are talking about. That conscience that is discerning the sole piece of us that's discerning good from evil, condemning some behavior, condoning other behavior. So when the biblical writers, especially Paul and Peter, talk about having a good and clear conscience, they're talking about the freedom of the Spirit in believers to discern what is ultimately good and what is ultimately evil. Are are we together? Does that make sense? Now, psychologists would use this word and teach this word completely different, making it capable for one who does not believe in Christ to have a similar discernment. The problem is, without Christ, listen, without Christ, there is only moral barometer and not true discernment. Are we together? Now, all that seems fairly heady. Let me step back from this and say this. Last week when we were talking about shame, we are talking about the weight of shame. We are talking about how shame just like grabs us and burdens us and weighs our shoulders down, making us almost immovable at times. That weight of shame in unbelievers is the condemning of the behavior that we as Christians are enacting in and it has gone unrepentant. And so that shame continues to build, continues to go unrepentant, and the spirit inside of us continues to convict and not condone the behavior. The crazy thing about shame, listen, and a, and a seared conscience, is it is haunting. How many of you guys have ever, listen, and I know you've done this because my wife always gets on. How many of you just pass a cop and you're instantly like hit the brake, right? You're going 10 miles under the speed limit, right? Your plates are not expired. All of your lights, you know, they all work. But you see a popo and I mean it is, foot hits the brake, right? How many of you guys do that? You're completely good to go. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm legit, but you see a cop and it just, I'll be driving on the interstate sometimes going 65 plus a few, right? Going 65 or so, and I'll see a cop and I'll like go down to 40. You know, I'm like, I'm just good, good to see you. You know what I'm saying? Listen, when we're not guilty, listen, one area of shame in our life causes us to feel haunted by all the other areas. And the shame, the shame becomes so intense. We feel like, and I love how the psalmist puts this, we feel like we're in a pit. That at once we could see the light, but it gets so deep that eventually we can't even see the top anymore. And that's why the psalmist writes in Psalm 40 and many other places, he has rescued me from the pit. Because the psalmist felt shame and also sensed and knew what it was to be rescued, you see. And so a a conscience that is filled with shame for an unbeliever is incredibly haunting and ultimately pulls us out of mission because all we find ourselves doing is hitting the brake when we come to cops. Every piece of our life, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
We have no confidence, no boldness in the gospel. We're constantly sitting back. We're haunted in the pit. That's why Peter knows for his readers to live the gospel in a hostile world, they must have a clear, good conscience. Put verse 16 back up for me. Verse 16. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you're spoken against, that's what the word slander means, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Revile means abused. So having a clear conscience, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. Listen to this. I've been studying uh, the beginnings of uh, Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9 and beyond. Crazy awesome story. I don't have time to read it right now, but I want to describe something to you. And this is why I think Paul is so obsessed with the word conscience. Listen. So Paul's a killer of Christians, okay? He is a persecutor of Christians. And then Paul, as some of you have heard the story, is walking on the road to Damascus. And this light comes down for heaven, from heaven. And God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And all of a sudden, Saul, like it's go time. God saves him. Uh, it says in verse uh, 16 or 17 there that, that literally he was chosen for, good, for the good for the gospel, God says to Ananias. And then here's what's interesting. Listen to this. For three days, Saul has scales on his eyes. And Ananias goes and gets Saul. And then they show up. Listen. They show up after the scales come off in the town square in Damascus. And you know what's instantly happening? Saul is instantly, immediately urgently telling people that Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what the reaction is in Damascus? Dude, you were just the guy that was here to kill. Like, you were the guy who was slandering us and abusing us, and now you're saying, now you're saying all of a sudden that something has happened to you and that Jesus is the King? Listen, then he goes to Jerusalem. And the Scripture says he meets some of the boys, some of the disciples. And so they see Paul and and. Saul at that time, and he comes in, and he's like, hey, guys, right? And Ananias, they're introducing each other, and they're like, the Scripture says they were afraid because the same guy Saul, the same guy Paul, was the one who just in Jerusalem a little bit ago was there to persecute them. The Scripture says in that piece that the Hellenists tried to kill him, those in Damascus tried to kill him, the thing that's overwhelming is Paul understands when you have a clear conscience You can boldly proclaim the gospel no matter who slanders you. Because in your heart, you know there's no hypocrisy. In your heart, you know that you are completely changed. And that's what Saul experienced. He was completely changed. And so it thrusted in him this sense of urgency. And he went from killing Christians to telling the same people he was persecuting that Jesus was king. With a clear conscience, no matter what was coming, no matter what slander or abuse he was going to take. This is unbelievable. This is why a clear conscience is so critical, because it takes away the hypocrisy. And you may be like, well, Mark, aren't we we always hypocrites? No, not true. We're only hypocrites if we don't claim victory in the grace of God. We're only hypocrites if we say that we're completely perfect without the need of Christ and the gospel. But we are not hypocrites when we're constantly confessing our sin in repentance, claiming victory in what the cross did for each and every one of us. Are you with me, church? So, listen. When Paul writes, having a good conscience 
so that, when the, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about they're put to shame because there's, they're condemning a man that with a complete non-hypocritical heart is saying Jesus is king. He says they're put to shame because shame is had when you are lacking in truth. That's the power of shame. The shame is had or is placed on those when you're lacking in in truth. And in this case, those that are lacking in truth are the ones that are saying that Saul, no, no, dude, like you're the, he's like, no, no, no. Non-hypocritical heart filled with truth, Jesus is king. But he says in the middle of this, they revile your what? Your good what? Behavior, crazy word. Only found seven times in the scripture, this Greek word for behavior. It's, this sound, kind of sounds like parental here, doesn't it? Right? Like, you go be a good boy now, right? Like, have some good, I mean, this sounds parenting. Listen, I feel like sometimes we're so burdened by the picture and thought of our shame and our lack in the gospel, what we can never accomplish that we never just really get excited about the opportunity that we have to live it out. We become so focused, even in coming here, I'm like, well, like, what's gonna be the thing that ultimately convicts me tonight? What's gonna be the thing that that calls me into question? And all that's important because we need repentance. But friends, good behavior in Christ is implying that Christians are living righteously, and now we're to the final piece of the statement that we've been wrestling with. God's sovereignty frees his children to live righteously, to live differently, to engage the gospel in such a way that our life portrays itself completely different than anyone else that we're around. His readers, listen, picture them sitting around in a room just saying, yes, We're scared. We're fearful. We know that out there it's hostile. And what Peter keeps saying is, no, no, no. You're not called to shrink back. Now is the time for you to reveal the gospel has truly changed you. And I love the phrasing, in Christ. Because it puts the focus on why we can behave good. It's not because that somehow earns us anything and there's merit that comes with that. It's because, listen, Christ, as he lived so preciously on this earth, portrayed for us what a life after God the Father can look like. He saved us, listen, he saved us on purpose and for a purpose. He saved and redeemed his children, Christ, on purpose, and for a purpose. And that purpose isn't just that the church would gather and say, man, we're horrible. Man, we're depraved. Man, that conscience without Christ, pretty messed up. No, no, no. That we would be charged, engaged, celebrating the power of Jesus, that we would long to leave this room and to live righteously. Peter's already written it. Just as he is holy, He's called you to live holy. Be holy as I am holy. This is the premise. I would long 
for the opportunity for us as a church to be so interested in emulating the life of Christ in this city that anything less than that would give us tremendous angst. And the picture is that when you're there, is that your conscience isn't cleared. Is that when you're not living like Jesus, is it begins to bear a burden on your conscience, and if gone unrepentant, will lead to shame. And I want to say this. Some of you who desperately struggle with shame, it is so rooted, listen, it is so rooted in selfishness, and ultimately what you're trying to get out of, it just keeps being heaped on because it is so self-focused. Listen, let me say it another way. Some of you who have deep, tremendous issues, you focus a ton of time on the issue. For instance, whatever it is, sexual addiction, you know, self-righteous image of yourself, whatever it is, you get so consumed with that issue, that's all you think about. You never just rest in the gospel and the power of it, really believing that what Christ did on the cross could be completely enough for all of that shame. And so you just keep thinking on it. Man, I struggle with porn. Man, I struggle with... Instead of, but the gospel has allowed me, freed me to live righteously. I just had, listen, I've had this overwhelming sense of urgency all week long. And I know it comes and goes in us, doesn't it? When we've seen a death in a family member, we have this sense where it's like, man, life is short. Or when we... Uh, when we see different things like that are slipping through our fingers, we're like, man, we better live like today is our last. But I have had this picture, finally, of what I feel like Peter's trying to say to his readers. He's like, do you understand the true power of Jesus' sacrifice in that God's plan has not just freed you from your sin, but has allowed you the tremendous privilege to live like him, empowered by the Spirit, on this earth in a hostile culture. We get the blessing of not being wrapped up in evil on this earth. Can I show you what I mean? Verse 17, look at this. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing what? I've had this profound sense all week long of how much evil there is and how easily it, in, it just entraps us, encapsulates us, harms us, comes after us, how easily we participate. And what I've realized is the power of the gospel. Listen, for every day that I'm here on this earth until God takes me away, I have the blessing, the privilege, the honor of living the gospel here without having to be consumed by evil on this earth. And as I await meeting him face to face in worship bowed down, do you get how much of a blessing that is, church? We have the blessing here and now through Christ of not being consumed by evil that leads to shame and regret. Rather, because of God's plan we get the awesome opportunity to sit back and to live freed righteously for his glory namesake. This is unbelievable. And the thing that I've been realizing is this. Listen, you guys know how much I love my kids. 
as I hold Avery and as I cling to Dawson and as I love my wife and as I joy being with you, all of that, all of that will go away. And maybe in an instant, And the thought of losing Avery or Dawson or my wife doesn't it just it just it may it it causes tremendous angst just thinking about it. And when you see others that lose children or that lose family members, inside you picture yourself there. And what I feel like Peter is saying, listen, is he's all you got. You want to live freely in a hostile world? Then guess what? It's better you suffer for living righteously because he's all you got. And he says, if it be God's plan, and what Paul said and we said it last week, Paul celebrated being able to cherish and to share in the sufferings of Christ. He's all we got, church. And what I'm saying to you is this, is when we get that, there is an urgency shift in our heart. All of a sudden, the fact that we've been called to be men on mission and women on mission escalates. And all of the things of this earth just fade away. And what's truly important comes to the helm, and that's Christ. He's all we long for. He's all we desire. And with a clear conscience, listen, with a clear conscience, we're able to boldly proclaim the gospel. Why? Because we're not hiding in a pit of hypocrisy. We're saying, I am freed by the gospel so I can say to you, Jesus is king. That sense of urgency brings us to the place of worship and in true understanding of God's sovereignty frees his children to live righteously. You get to live like Christ. He saved you on purpose and for a purpose. And I don't know what more you would want, church. So what happens? What happens when the church gets urgent? What happens when we understand that the biblical readers were trying to make a coin too? and trying to feed their family. What happens when we get that grasp? Everything fades away, and every day we wake up, give me Christ or give me nothing else. God, thank you for my children. God, thank you for my wife, but I know you're all I have. You're all I got. You're my only hope. You're my every answer. You're my every joy. Are you with me, church? That's the freedom through suffering that comes through Christ. And I think ultimately, one of the greatest pictures of that, as Jesus broke the bread, listen, as he broke the bread, when he was with his disciples, this meal, the partaking, the remembrance of Christ in this meal, listen, the whole intention of it was to be when you take this meal, when you remember my body, what you're saying is, this is all I got. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you take this meal, you're saying, this is all I got. I got nothing else. I have no other hope. 
no matter whether I suffer or whether I'm blessed, whatever comes, Jesus is all I got. The gospel is all I have. And so he breaks the bread with his boys and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And the urgent, the urgent remembrance was this body is all that I have. And then he takes the cup and in literally one of the deepest phrases of all of scripture, he says, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. And he's alluding to the sacrifice that would come on a cross and that blood spilt as the perfect Passover lamb represented the means by which our sins would be forgiven and the means by which when Christians would gather for years until Christ comes back, the picture was when you take this meal, what you're you're remembering, what you're saying is Christ is all I have. And so I have no other option but to live urgently, to live passionately, to live emboldened with a clear, shameless, non-hypocritical conscience so that I can boldly proclaim the truth of Christ. Listen, get out of your schedules. Your schedules need to be shaken a little bit. They become a crux for you. You've been blaming your lack of missionality on the fact that you have this to do and this to do and this to do. We have one thing to do, and that's to glorify Christ, all of us. In all of our contexts, yes. Within all of our schedules, yes. But maybe it's time to rearrange. Maybe it's time to restructure. The reality is most of us don't even have unbelieving friends to pursue and to boldly proclaim the current defense that we have in the gospel. Because all you do is live in this rooted schedule that puts you around more and more Christians. That's not the call, friends. We're here, yes, to enjoy fellowship, and it's awesome. But we're to be sent to share the current defense and the hope that we have of the gospel. By taking this meal tonight, what you're saying, as a believer, and that's what this meal is for, is you're saying is, I have nothing else. I have nowhere else to go. And for those of you that are in a pit of your own shame and regret and maybe your unbelief, the amazing picture of the cross of Christ, listen, is that no pit is too deep. Can you celebrate with me tonight with that? No pit is too deep. His mighty arm is strong enough for any of our weaknesses and as much of our sin. And so tonight as we worship and as we respond, your partaking of this meal by intention, by pulling off a piece of the bread and dipping it in the cup is saying urgently, I have nothing else but Christ. And so I ask that you would prepare your heart, that you would repent, and that you would realize that everything will go away and all in the end that we will have left is the blood and sacrifice and resurrection of a mighty Savior. Let's pray together.